Hey, everybody. Whoa. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you all tonight. I hope you all are well. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the uh, campus minister here with RUF. Um, if this is your first time, we're really glad you're here. I know that this week has been a drain on me and a drain on a lot of other students. So um, thanks for taking the time out of your week and out of your night to come visit us. Uh, and to everyone else who's here week in, week out, it's, it's great to see you all again. Y'all are a huge source of encouragement to me. And uh, I'm, yeah, I really love y'all. So um, it's great to see you here tonight. Um, yeah, I hope that if the, for those of you who are new, um, you're wondering what you've stumbled into, that some of the songs that we sang um, give you a little indication um, that we are a Christian group and we're here to lean into some of the broken places, the hard places in our life, um, our own brokenness, our own sin, maybe we could even call it, but also um, how God is gracious is the word. Um, and we're going to keep looking at that tonight. Um, and so, um, yeah, this week I've been reflecting a lot on yeah, I don't know. I've been discouraged this week. I know that some of you have felt the same thing, just the discouragement of college and watching. I mean, I see all the Instagram stories, and I know that college is hard, life is hard right now, and the news is hard, and so I've been discouraged. Um, and uh, I know that a lot of y'all are in the same boat, um, either depressed or discouraged. And so tonight, um, we're going to look at a piece of scripture which actually meets us right there in the midst of discouragement um, and speaks really powerfully to it. So. Um, we're going to look at one of the most potent, I mean, many commentators and theologians consider this possibly the most powerful chapter in the entire Bible. Um, and we're actually going to look at it for the next three weeks because it's amazing. Um, and tonight we're going to look at how does this piece of, I mean, really simple, how does this piece of scripture encourage us? And uh, we're going to see three things. Um, one, we're going to see Paul encourages us with the spirit-filled life that we are children of God and that we are in this emotionally together. So the spirit-filled life that we're children of God and that we are in this emotionally together. So um, I'm going to read this text. It's a longer piece of text. And when I read that and as I talk tonight, if you have questions, you're confused by what um, we're talking about and you would like to dialogue, shoot me a text. My phone number is on the piece of paper or if you have my phone number, then you can do it that way. Um, so this is from Romans chapter 8 and we're going to read the first uh, 17 verses. This is God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sorry. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law. This has set you free in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Sorry, the wind's blowing my pages all over the place. I'm going to turn this way. Okay. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God, for God has done, what the law weakened in the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh, for the sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the, power, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let me pray real quick. Lord in heaven, thank you that um, we are here again tonight on campus at New Mexico State and the mercy that that is, that we are coming from across town, across the state, um, into this place and that your spirit is with us. We pray, Lord, as we look at your word, that it would encourage us. And that as we look at what your Holy Spirit does in and through and for us, that we would be nourished and equipped to serve you and love others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so what we've been talking about throughout this book as we've been studying the book of Romans, has been what God does for humans. What God does for humans. First, God's mighty acts of saving human beings that we've called justification. Of God coming and declaring us righteous by his mighty application of Christ's perfection to us. And that is only, it's received by faith alone, by trusting in what God has done in Christ. We call that justification. Now we're beginning to pivot and we're talking about sanctification. Sanctification, which is God's work in and through us to make us more like Christ, to change us into the kind of people that we all wish we were. And we're going to continue looking at that tonight, and we're going to look at uh, this, in, and, and we're going to see that this, this encourages us. As Christians, when we're in the midst of discouraging times in our lives and our faith, that this is encouraging. And so I hope that as we meditate on this, that you come away encouraged, uh, nourished emotionally, spiritually, and even socially, even physically, um, of what God is doing. Uh, and, and we're going to look at this in three ways. Like I said, the spirit-filled life, children of God, and emotions together. So uh, let's look at this together. So we're going to dive in first at the spirit-filled life. And so we're going we're to look first at uh, chapter 8, 1, verse 1, which is such a powerful verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are on Christ Jesus. And this is sort of the summary banner verse for the whole, everything that's going to follow. And in this, uh, what does he mean here? He says that for those who trust in Jesus, for those who say, yes, Jesus Christ is my life and my hope, he says that God has issued an eternal not guilty verdict on your behalf, on my behalf. Well, how is that possible? How can God come to us and say, I'm not condemning you? How, how is that even, how can God do that? Well, he tells us in verses 2 and 3. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How's that happen? How did that happen? Well, he tells us, well, for God, 
for, that, that for is another way of saying because, because God has done what the law, so that's the thing that was enslaving us. He says, no, that for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So he's saying that our sin weakens the law in such a way that we, are, we would be con get condemned unless God does something. Unless God comes and does something, which he says, which God has done. He, has, we, he says, he has, what is it? For God has done what the law could not do. What is that? Well, he sent his own son. Verse 3. In the likeness of sinful flesh, so he looks like sinful flesh, but he was not sinful. He follows the law perfectly. He's perfectly obedient. In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, what's he describing here? He's, he's talking about justification, this thing that we've been talking about through the last several weeks of God working on our behalf to deliver us from our tendency and our sin nature. That the righteous requirement, the standard of perfection that you and I could never possibly meet up to, God does it for us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That what Christ earns for us on the cross, his holiness, his righteousness, he says now the Holy Spirit applies that to us. Think of it this way. Think about this if you had a debt that you could never possibly repay. A debt that you could never possibly repay. It's just billions and billions of dollars. And God comes and Christ comes and he says he takes his own riches. Christ is the richest person in the whole universe. He comes and takes his riches and says, hey, I'm giving this wealth of mine to Jonathan, to you. And he says, here it is. This is mass. And so he writes this massive check that would pay your debt. Well, the check isn't enough. The check has to be applied to our account, right? It has to be applied to our debt. It's no good unless it actually gets applied. The Holy Spirit is the one, is like the banker. <laughs> if I will work the metaphor beyond straining. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes and actually cashes the check so that we become righteous, so that we become holy before God. That's justification. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He, he says here that the Holy Spirit works the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. And he tells us that when that happens, something radical and new happens to us in verses 5 through 8. Look at that again. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. And so what is he doing here? He's setting up a contrast between those who have been justified and those who have not those who are still in the flesh. He creates an, he says when this happens, when this justification thing happens, there's a new kind of person created. A new kind of person who is alive to the things of God. They're a, 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 he would say it's a capital S, a spirit-filled person. And he, and, he and he compares that or contrasts that with a person who is of the flesh. So he says there's this mind of the flesh. What is that? Well, it's not just somebody who's thinking with their physical brain. In the, in the Bible, often in the book of Romans, the word flesh, it means the sinful part of who we are. The part that's, as he says, lower, below, hostile to God, in opposition or ag antagonistic to God. And so he says here the flesh is the constant desire to fulfill our own once in contradiction to God. It's, it's the characteristic of non-Christians. 
But then when this righteous action of God happens, this righteousness of Christ is applied to us, it creates a new person, this person who has the mind of the Spirit, which is, what does he say? It's an affection and a delight for God. Someone who's willing to submit to God's law. Someone who is willing to and desires to love God. He's saying here that, this is fascinating, he's saying that basically there's no neutrality when it comes to the Christian faith. There's nobody who can say like, nah, I kind of dabble in Christianity. I like sort of flirt with it, but I'm not a huge, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in. What he's saying here is that either you're a Christian, those who are of the spirit, or you're not. In the, you have the mind of the flesh. Think of it this way. Think of World War II. I know some of you are World War II buffs. Some of you even taking classes on it. What made World War II so colossal, such a massive war, was that there was very little neutrality. There was a couple of neutral, but m literally most of the world was on one of two sides, either on the side of the Axis or on the side of the Allies. And there was not a lot of middle ground. There was, there, and there couldn't be because there were completely different and opposed ideologies at conflict in the war, right? You couldn't be a Nazi and you couldn't be like a liberal Western American at the same time. They were completely antagonistic ways of living. And that's what he's saying here is true of Christianity, that there's no neutrality. He's saying you can't dabble in Christianity. You can't window shop of faith. You are either a Christian who has had God do this radical transformation in your life and heart, or you haven't. And Paul would say, if you haven't, then you are hostile to God. Even if you don't feel like it, that you have a hostile attitude toward God. But he says, if you are a Christian, You've been united to God in Christ. You've been united to Christ, and you have a new set of desires, a set of desires that to know and love and obey God. And he says this is all a work of the Holy Spirit. And this is where it starts to get encouraging. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who creates and instills and cultivates this desire to know and love God. If you have that desire, then the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Now, some of you might ask, well, why don't I desire this more? Why do I not, why do I not follow God more? Why, do I, why are there times when I want to love and follow God, but then there's other times that I don't? What do I do with those moments, Jonathan? Does that mean that God isn't active in me? Does it mean maybe I'm not a Christian? And to you, Paul would say, not at all. He would say, no, sin still remains in you, but the bigger and better and stronger side is the Holy Spirit at work, is in work in you. And you know why that's true? It's because the non-Christian doesn't ask the question, am I a Christian? It's only those who have had God work mightily in their hearts and lives who are saying, hey, why don't I wish I loved God more? It's only that person whom God has worked in in a saving way. Verse 9, Paul tells us more. He says, you, however are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong in him. But, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What is he saying here? He's saying that anyone who the Spirit dwells in is united to Christ. Anyone who the Spirit dwells in is united with Christ, which means that Christ's righteousness has been put on them and their sin has been placed on Christ. We've talked about that the last few weeks. And if that has happened, then the Holy Spirit automatically, 100%, is in you, working 
for your good and God's glory and giving us that no condemnation verdict. Think of it this way. I went to college in, uh, in New York City, and one of the weird quirks of the school I went to was that it was in the Empire State Building, which was weird. Um, and I, uh, there was this thing that would happen when I would have friends come and visit. They'd want to go up in the Empire State Building because it's kind of a novel building. And uh, they couldn't go up. Well, what would happen is they'd come in like the middle of the summer, and so the lines to go to up the Empire State Building were super long. They'd wrap around the block, and if you wanted to go up, you had to wait in line, and you know they were only there for a couple of days, and they didn't want to spend several hours standing in line. But I was a tenant of the Empire State Building because I went to school there. And so part of being the only perk of being a tenant at the Empire State Building was that I had this pass that could bypass the lines, and it could get you half-price tickets, which was another perk. And so what would happen is I would just, we would skip all the lines and go straight to the front, straight to the front of the line. And I would flash my little ID and the other person, who my friends who were with me, got all the benefits of that. They got all the benefits of being, uh, in effect, united with Jonathan. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a Christian. That when you're united with Christ, all the benefits that come with that are passed to us, which is the Holy Spirit in and with and for us. And that gives us great hope. It tells us that Christianity is not just some sort of pious hope and feeling of God's del delight, but it's actually something that gives us confidence and hope. Verse 11 tells us that. For if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies. What is that saying? It's saying that Christianity is a, hate, a faith that actually affects your mortal body in some way. Like the stuff that you're sitting on the grass with. That Christianity has an effect on that even. That, that the Holy Spirit is in the process and will ultimately be in the process of saving you from even physical death. That you will die, but you will not truly die, he says. That we will, we will all be raised to life again in Christ. Here's why that's good news. A couple of years ago, I went to visit the Grand Canyon. I don't know, how many of you all seen the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon is in the middle of nowhere. You're driving to the Grand Canyon and you're looking around, you're in this forest and you can't see anything. There's nothing but trees and you're like, there's no way there's a Grand Canyon here. And then I remember driving through and I saw um, a tiny, tiny little sliver of the Grand Canyon. Just a tiny little sliver of it. And I was like, oh, I saw the Grand Canyon. And uh, I remember thinking like, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is great. Look, I just saw it. And my sister, who had been to the Grand Canyon before, she looked back at me and said, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. And I was like, I saw the Grand Canyon. And she said, wait, you haven't seen anything yet. So we get to the, uh, the visitor center. We get out of the observation deck. And I walk out, and I see the Grand Canyon in all of its incredible splendor. And I completely forgot about everything else that I had seen. Everything else that I seen, had seen, that tiny little crack through the trees on the drive up, was, it paled. It was nothing compared to this massive canyon of layers and layers of rock and of eagles riding on air currents and of powder blue sky and red rock and green trees and dusting, dusty air blowing around in sparkling water. Just, it, it paled. It was breathtaking. It was overwhelming. That's what verse 11 is telling us. It says that right now, 
we get glimpses of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Glimpses, but he says, you haven't seen anything yet. The best is yet to come of what God is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing. He says, the work that God is doing in your spiritual life and even in your body, you haven't seen anything yet. The best is yet to come. So what is the Spirit-filled life here? It's the life where God unites us to Jesus when we trust in Christ. And with that comes in the flooding of the Holy Spirit who gives us Christ's righteousness as a gift and actually puts that into our account, who transfers us from hostility to God to delighting in God, who dwells in us and, and gives us his own presence in and with us, and, and who says, you haven't seen anything yet with the promise of life after death. But that's not where it stops. He says, now, if that's true, if that's what the Holy Spirit is doing, what's our posture before God? And that's the second thing we see here is of living, with, living like children. It introduces a new way for us to live as Christians, as to live like children. Look at verse 12. He says, so then, or in light of this, brothers and sisters, he says, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who have died, who, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into, sin, into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What's going on here? Well, in verses 12 and 13, he's, he's, saying he's calling us to a radical new obedience because of what the Holy Spirit has done. He says, we're debtors. All that God has done for us in his love, he says, when you really understand what God has done for you in Christ, what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, when you really understand that, then you want, you desire, you long to love and obey God. Why? Because when you really understand grace, when you understand God's free gift towards you, you want to respond in love. Think of it this way. How many of you have had a class, or maybe, unfortunately, have a class right now that you're failing? It's not going well. Don't raise your hand. Okay, you can raise your hand. Um, some of you raised your hand, and now you're all up there. But, all right, so you, you don't just, you're not just doing poorly in a class, like a C minus. You're like, you've got, you did, you got an F on this class. It's, like, game over. And not only did you bomb this class hard, but now your GPA is in trouble and your scholarships are on the line. And so you're in deep, deep trouble as a student. And you're expecting to get kicked out of school. And the, uh, you're, you're sitting at your e computer waiting for the email from the dean that says, hey, um, you're no longer a student at New Mexico State. And then all of a sudden, you get an email from the dean of students. And says, he says, hey, the professor called me, and he wants to give you an A. Not because he deserves it, because he thinks you're a good, he, he, he loves you. He thinks you're a good student. And not only does he want to give you an A, um, he wants to uh, he wants to give you private tutoring. He wants to meet with you one on one and make sure that you do well in all your classes. And, and, and not only that, he wants to do it all for free. And not only that, he wants to get, make sure that you get a better scholarship than the one you had. That's the email you get, not the you're kicked out of the university email. Now, imagine that. If you were to get that email, how would you respond? Would you be like, oh, great, I can coast through college now? I don't have to try anymore. No, that's a preposterous. You would say, I want to try all the harder now. I want to be the best student that I could possibly be. I want, to, I want to live up to his expectations. I want to be the best student I can be because of his grace towards me. If that's true of a professor's grace, how much more true is that of God's grace? 
who loves you so much that his son would die for you. When you understand God's grace to you, when you see how much he loves you, forgives you, gives you the blessing of the Holy Spirit, you want to obey. That's what Paul says here. He says we're debtors. Not to receive a spirit of slavery. We're like, well, great, now I have to serve God all the time. No, because we want to. We long to be obedient and loving to this God who loves us. Great love inspires great obedience. When you see how God loves you, you want to obey. You want to kill the sin that remains. What does this mean here? This means that for the Christian, we sin because we forget God's grace. Any moment of sin in your life is because you're neglecting or forgetting or ignoring God's grace. Whenever you see sin in your life, it's a misunderstanding of God's love. If you get drunk on a Friday night, it's because you don't know God's love. If you look at pornography, it's because you've forgotten God's love. If you think, if you, you feel like you have to boast in front of your friends about how smart you are or how high your GPA is, it's because you've forgotten how much God loves you. The antidote to sin is God's love. In verse 14, he shows us what that love is. That we should be called children of God. We call this doctrine the doctrine of adoption, which is this, that God takes us into his very family. He makes us his own children. He loves and cherishes and cares for and delights in us. One of the best parts of my day is when I get to read a book with my daughter before she goes to bed. And we sit on, in our little chair and we read a book and she just kind of re rests her head back on my shoulder and we read a book. And it's really sweet. It's this tender, tender moment in my day. It's this moment of contentment, of trust, of sweet vulnerability, of loving and being loved. And he says that's, that's what's true of all of us. He says we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is the Aramaic word for Daddy, for Papa. He says that's what's true of us as Christians. It's this tender Love. Think about what this is saying. He's saying that the God of the Bible, the creator of everything in the entire universe, the Lord of everything that is, zooms down and cares and loves you as a Christian. Notice it says here that we are adoption as sons. And I know that maybe some of you women here are like, wait a minute, what does that mean? That's not comforting at all. Why not include us as daughters? And to get what he's getting at there, we actually have to zoom out a little bit and think about and learn a little bit about what is going on in the Greco-Roman culture. And in the Greco-Roman culture of the day, um, it was a really patriarchal con context. Uh, there was the paterfamilias who was in charge of the whole family, and he pretty much ran the family. And the only person who mattered besides him was the oldest son. That was the only one who had any stock in the family. The other children or the women or the um, slaves, they didn't matter. No, you know, they didn't have legal rights. They didn't have social rights, anything like that. It was just the oldest son. And so uh, the, it's really messed up. And, 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 but into this culture, Paul, what does Paul say? He says, you all have received adoption as sons. He says, God brings all, including women, including children, including slaves, those of you who don't have value in your present context, God values you. God is it, God's saying he values you even when your culture doesn't value you. He's saying adoption as sons, if, if he had said adoption as sons and daughters, the women in the audience would have said, well, great, the God of the Bible doesn't care about us either. This is worthless to me. But what he's saying here instead, he says, he says sons to say that 
all of us, women, children, rich, poor, Latino, white, black men, women, all of us are the chief heirs, the ones who get the best that God has. The best that God has for us. So what seems like it's a statement of exclusion to us is actually a statement of radical inclusion, of radical love that is extended to anyone and everyone who trusts in Christ. That's the kind of God that the Holy Spirit is. That's the kind of God that Christianity has. So what does this passage mean? It's showing us over and over again how much God loves us. How much God loves us. And what's amazing to me as I was reflecting on all of this is it's God loving us, not us loving God, that God lavishes his love on us. Every other religion in the world hinges your spirituality, your loveliness, your acceptance hinges on how well you can work the spiritual world. Think about Star Wars, right? Remember in Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back when Luke is reaching out, his, he, when the, his X-Wing is stuck in the mud? And he's trying to lift it out, and he's trying, he's straining, and Yoga perks, Yoga, Yoda perks his ears up and is trying to encourage him and say, you can lift it up, and then he can't. And he says, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough, or something like that. And, is, and, and in, in Star Wars, the success, your, your, your success depends on how strong you are. Your success is how well you can work the force. Christianity is the other way around. The success is based on God working for us. This personal adopting God working in and for us. It's not your power, but God who works in us in his love. Now, if that's true, we have this God and this Holy Spirit who is working mightily in and through and for you. How does that apply to your life? If this is true, and I know this is a question that many of you ask, why don't I feel it? <laughs> if this is what God is doing for me, even right now, why don't I feel it more often? Why don't I feel closer to God? Why is my life hard? And there's a little hint in verse 17 where he starts talking about suffering, and we'll get, we're going to talk explicitly about that in, uh, next time. But there's a little piece here that I want to talk about, is, um, is that for most of us, we're slaves to our feelings. For most of us, we're slaves to our feelings. Even you engineers, we end up thinking what we feel. We end up thinking what we feel. When I feel alone, I isolate myself even more. When I feel depressed, I hate myself even more. When I feel like a failure in my class, I won't study. Um, and that's the opposite of what life in the spirit looks like. I feel far from God, so I am far from God. I feel like God doesn't love me, so God must not love me feel like God doesn't care what I do, so I'm just going to go do whatever I want. We let our feelings overwhelm and overpower what's true, and Paul calls us here to think against our feelings a lot of the time, to think against our feelings, to tell ourselves what's true, even when it doesn't feel true. And listen carefully here, because this is something that I know you all encounter, because I've talked with you all this month. You and I, we become people who think, we have to become people who think against our feelings, where we have to let evangelical thinking, that is gospel-driven thinking, correct emotional thinking. Let me give some examples of how that could work. For depression, what is depression? It's feelings that I am worthless, I'm alone, I'm unloved, I feel dead inside. And all of those are real feelings. Don't hear me saying that those are just, you know, those are figments of your imagination. Those are real, real feelings that you're feeling. They come from sadness and isolation. And ultimately, this would say they're not 
necessarily true. They're real, but not true. What Paul is saying here, if it's true, it says then that God is at work in you, that you are not worthless because you are his daughter or you're his son, that you are not alone because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that you are not unloved, you are his child, that God deeply loves him, and he will not abandon his children to despair and to death. So it's, we're learning together to think against our feelings. Think about addiction. You name it, pornography, alcohol, drugs. Behind every addiction is a desperate desire to escape and to feel warmth. Addiction, according to a counselor um, named Jay Stringer, he says it's a fake medication for our deepest needs for connection and relationship. What does the gospel offer? A real connection of relationship and connection, not fake. The deepest connection and relationship is nothing less than God himself. So when you feel an addiction or an addictive power, the gospel would say run together, learn to run to what's true of you in Christ. This can go on and on and on. Uh, and if you're like, Jonathan, I don't know how this applies to my experience. Come up and talk to me. Let's hang out. I don't know either, but let's explore it. Let's see how the gospel speaks to your moment. So here we are with this amazing life that God calls us to, of, of, of freedom, of loveliness, of, of seeing his warmth. And I'll just say this, and then I'll wrap up, that we are called to do this together. That this is too much for you to do by yourself. I think the number one issue facing New Mexico State students right now is loneliness and isolation. That, that we think that I can live a godly, pious life by myself. And what is that? It's loneliness. It's the inability to be vulnerable, the inability to leave my computer, close my phone, and go talk to somebody about what I'm scared of or what I'm afraid of. Do you have the friends who can help you walk in the Spirit, who can help you, who will remind you of how much God loves you? If you don't, you will be discouraged. That's just facts. This life of the Spirit is a life together because often the, the warmth that we experience from God is, is felt most closely through warmth with other people. Here's the community you need. You need allies, you need guides, you need sages. Allies are the people who you do life with in the trenches, the people who will just walk with you in the ups and downs of lights and grades and tests. You can laugh with and play with. Do you have those allies, those people who will say, I love you and I'm on your side and God loves you? You need guides. These are pastors, counselors, friends, people who are a little bit further ahead of you who will walk with you and will help you to see what's true even when you're discouraged. Do you have that? And then the sages. These are the people who are so smart they write books about it. They write, they write books about how, how, how much God loves you. Do you partake of the wealth of the riches of godly women and men who have gone before us and tell us how much God loves us and apply it to your situation? When you do that, the Holy Spirit works in powerful, powerful ways to revitalize, to encourage, and to nourish you. If, if you don't have that community, come talk to us because we are passionately trying in RUF to create that community. It's hard. Co coronavirus pandemic make that hard, but it's possible and because the Holy Spirit is at work. Come talk to us. So what does this passage show us? It shows us the fullness of the life of the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit does for us. It shows us what the Holy Spirit did for us. It shows us what the Holy Spirit will do for us. It shows us how much God adores you and me when we are Christians, that we are sons of God. And it shows us that we are to internalize and claim those truths for our own.
I pray that that's true for each and one of you. I pray that that's true for your friends, that you will be the kind of people who move close to your friends with that. When we do that, God is mighty and he will be faithful. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this time. We pray that you would use it to equip us for your service. We pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage us, that you would use your word to show us how much you love us, that you would use each other to show us how much you love us, and that we would be people who are full of your love and full of care for each other. Do this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me turn off the live stream. Okay, someone texts and says, how do we fight the self-fulfilling, secretly flesh-indulging kind of Christianity that seems to blur the line between true submission to God and the self-bent religion? Hmm, great question. How do we fight the self-fulfilling, secretly flesh-indulging kind of Christianity which seems to blur the lines between true submission to God and self-bent religion? Um, simplest answer is dig deep into scripture. If, some, if there's a Christian community or a Christian pastor who's doing something that's pretty explicitly contrary to, Christ, to, to the, the Bible, um, they're on the rad, wrong track. Um, so in Acts, what is it, 18, there's this group of people who are called the Bereans and they dig deep into scripture and they see, is this actually true? So um, it means that you're called to be a person who studies your Bible. Um, but it also means that you are called to be in a community like RUF where you have people who will help you because it's a big, hard book. Um, so uh, yeah, study your Bible. Second, you're not the only Christian who's ever been. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of Christians who have lived before you who are way smarter and way more godly than you are. And they live in Africa and China and 